Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal Worship Service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our call to confession today is from Proverbs 28, verse 3. A poor man who oppresses the poor is a beating rain that leaves no food. I'll just read that again. A poor man who oppresses the poor is a beating rain that leaves no food. The purpose and profit of rain is to nourish the earth, to raise food. And it does this wonderfully when it falls gently and steadily. But what, when water comes to our gardens in a violent storm or too quickly from an errant hose, like it did for me yesterday, it can easily wash away topsoil and the seeds contained in it by the flood of water. So the very thing that ought to be for the benefit for the seeds in our garden can become a ruthless and destructive force. So how is a poor man who oppresses the poor like a beating rain? There's no virtue in poverty. Poverty does not automatically make men charitable or noble or virtuous. In this proverb, Solomon observed poor men being cruel and stingy to other poor men, which he considered a perverse practice. And he saw poor men who, when given authority or riches, became merciless tyrants, abusing their power over their peers, or their former peers. This is vanity and insanity. He who ought to remember his former state and show tender kindness grinds the poor instead for his arrogant greed. So we ought to check ourselves. Do we have kindness or spite for those that are once what we were? Parents, do you empathize with your children, remembering their folly when you were their age? Not to overlook look it, but to discipline and guide with understanding, remembering their baptisms. As employees, are you impatient? I'm sorry, are you patient or impatient with your junior recruits, recalling the difficult days in your career enough to point them out? or point them in the right direction. Older brothers and sisters, do you have compassion for your younger sibling who is struggling or confused with what you were just a few years ago? And grandparents, do we honestly remember the difficulty of those early years of marriage and of child rearing so that we're able to come along our side of our adult children in a meaningful way? So simply, are you loving your neighbor? Jesus Christ went from the poverty of a lowly carpenter's son to the Prince of Kings of the Earth. He surely remembers and pities us in our weak condition and amongst our hard trials. Please kneel where you are if you're willing and able to confess our sins together. introduced. I am Steve Hemmeke, pastor of uh, the CREC Church in Virginia and in Newport News, and I bring you greetings from the saints at Covenant Heritage Reformed Church there, our sister congregation with yourselves in the CREC. I've uh, been working through a sermon series in Philippians, just finished it, so I thought I would bring you a couple of those messages this week and next. Uh, Philippians 2 is a, a great chapter, and so I'm going to jump right in. You've got some uh, sermon outline material there in the bulletin. I tend to uh, write out a 
one-sentence theme for the sermon uh, near the beginning of my uh, studies as I begin looking at uh, a, a passage, just so that it focuses uh, what's going on in the text. really helps me to, uh, to focus on what the text is saying and keep myself close to the intent of Scripture. So you see that in the uh, outline there. Because of Christ's work for us and in us, we are to be united in humility, following Jesus' own example of humility in what he has done for us. So that uh, is the the theme that we'll be looking at as we uh, walk through uh, the first half of this chapter uh, this week and then the second half of the chapter next week. At this point, let's uh, pause. I'd like to pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the scriptures that we have read. We pray that as we uh, uh, meditate upon them, as we hear your word preached, that uh, you would direct my lips and my heart, that you would uh, have us receive and be attentive in our ears and hearts as well, that your spirit would be uh, active and alive, illuminating these words, driving them into our hearts. Uh, in encouraging and convicting ways, pointing us to your Son, Jesus Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if any, effect, if any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, uh, you have several uh, clauses there in the first, paragraph, in the first verse, uh, four ifs, really, And these are causes, these are motivations in verse 1 towards the unity that you see uh, called for in verses 2 and 3. So uh, the ifs aren't so much an uncertainty. He's not saying, I'm not so sure about you guys if you you have any of this. Paul knows the Philippians. He knows that they have this. He's he's pointing out the connection. It's more of a, since I know you're encouraged in Christ... Since I know that you have affection and sympathy in him, uh, then go on, complete my joy, uh, be of one mind. It's more that idea. There is, there is a slight element of uncertainty in the grammar, but, but knowing Paul and knowing his relationship with the, with the Philippians, with the churches that he has planted, uh, there's a great deal of encouragement here, and he's simply making a connection. Since you know uh, Christ, since you have this comfort in the gospel, then do this. So just to look briefly at each of these, if there's any uh, comfort in Christ, that word there is the word we get paraclete from, uh, the Holy Spirit, a name we sometimes give the Holy Spirit. If, if, if there's a called alongsideness to that word, that's the kind of encouragement uh, that we have in Christ. Uh, so the Spirit comforts us, so we then turn and comfort one another, is the move that Paul's making here. If any... Um, comfort from love. God accepts you in love. Uh, I worked through the commentary by James Boyce. I uh, appreciate Boyce a great deal. And he speaks here of mercy. Uh, This is referring to God's mercy. Uh, God gives us mercy, so we turn and we're eager to overlook others' mistakes in love. And then if there's any uh, participation in the Spirit, uh, there's a relationship with God that the Spirit fosters within us. And so we turn and we invite other believers into fellowship. If we're out of fellowship, out of harmony, if we can't talk to a fellow believer because we're offended, uh, that often reveals a lack of fellowship with God because there's a connection there. And if there's any affection, if there's any sympathy, uh, 
Paul in Philippians piles on the affectionate language. You see it in chapter 1, verse 8 as well, the affection of Christ Jesus. And here again, Paul appeals to our basic fondness for each other because we are all in Christ. Since we're all on the same team, since we're all in Christ, uh, then, verse 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord in one mind. So there's, there's a visible unity that is needed. Now the church in the last 50 years or so has gone through this ecumenical uh, thing and, and where the, the organizational unity of the church uh, was pressed uh, and, and assertions are made often that if, if we're not one in, in one institution, one organization, then that's, that's a problem. I'm not necessarily talking about that. It's not an organizational unity necessarily. But we do need a visible unity, a, a manifestly obvious to the world, uh, wow, they're, they're together. They're, they're the, on the same team. They love one another. And Paul appeals to that. That's how we're supposed to be. A, a close and intimate relationship. Same love. Same accord. Uh, in the church, because of our sinful nature, we, there is constant pressure uh, to divide and to isolate in the church. It, it happens all the time over and over. When you, when, when you read church history in one regard, you see it's a history of divisions and splits, and it can be very discouraging. Uh, and Paul is working against that, saying, look, the Spirit is with you, you have the Word, uh, you, it doesn't have to be that way. So work against that constantly. But you can't have hu- unity without, verse 3, without humility. So do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Put others first. Uh, all the law summarized in one word, love your neighbor, as we just read. Now, if we look in in Scripture, we see that Satan exalted himself. Satan wanted the place of the Most High. I don't have time to go there this morning, but in Isaiah 14 and in Ezekiel 28, you see his story. Uh, He was an anointed cherub, is is the Ezekiel language. Uh, I think he had the number two spot in the universe, right below the Son of God. But for him, that wasn't enough. He had to be number one. And in Isaiah 14, you see him saying, I will ascend. I will be like the Most High. I will go up. I'm going to do this. Satan exalted himself. And when he comes to Adam and Eve in the garden, it's the same problem. What does he say to them? What does he plant in their minds? Look, God's not letting you have everything. God gave Adam and Eve everything except one tree, right? God gives Satan everything except one spot. So Satan wanted that one spot. So Satan comes to them, God's not letting you have everything? Who does he think he is? You should take the fruit. Then he won't be so great. Then you'll be like him. And he can't lord it over you anymore. That's the satanic, prideful mindset that Paul is arguing against. Jesus instead tells us to take the lower seat, not to chase the higher. So pride is our basic problem. We need to admit that. We need to humble ourselves and stay close to Christ. Uh, Moses, if you remember in the Old Testament, Moses was described as the humblest man on earth. Uh, But he even got uppity when he struck the rock to give the grumbling Israelites water. And he says, must we bring water from this rock for you? And he strikes the rock. And because of that, God uh, does not allow him into the promised land. Moses himself that pride rises up. 
So we must be humble. Uh, there's more on that in the rest of the chapter, so I'll go uh, on for now. More on that next week. Um, the whole second half of the chapter is all about humility, and we'll see that next week. Really, this whole um, chapter is, of course, right? It's skipped over the overview of Philippians there. You see in chapter 2, the mind of Christ is one of humility. And that's what we find in the next uh, verses, verses 5 through 11. Uh, so... <clears throat> Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. I had a little bit of fun with verse 5 when I was uh, preaching this uh, down in Virginia. I'm, uh, I'm a Michigander originally and have been living in Virginia for 10 years now. And our children are starting to pick up some of the dialect. So every now and then I'll hear in my house, even from my own wife, the word y'all. So it's, it gets a little disconcerting. We're, we're used to you guys and this kind of thing. Where, where you're from here in, the, in Michigan. But y'all actually comes in handy in, in the grammar of this because where you see yourselves, it's a plural, right? Have this mind among yourselves, the ESV I'm reading from. That's helpful. That gives among yourselves. So that gives the same idea. It's, other translations make it more of an individual thing. Think this way, in you. And if you just say in you, that... Often we think of that as, okay, I have to think a certain way. I've got to think. I've got to be thinking. I've got to be. And it's not, it's not individual in your own brain. Uh, what it is is, uh, think this way among y'all. So uh, it's not about individual minds. It's not about your smarts. It's not about your IQ. It's how should we think about each other. That, that's what Paul's addressing here. And his question is, well, the way Jesus thought toward us. That's the answer to the question. Well, how was that? And suddenly we're into one of the highest and the greatest passages of all Scripture. In, in verses 6 through 11. Uh, Jesus lowered himself to be with us, to be like us, to serve us. He went from the highest spot to the lowest spot. Voluntarily. On his own. Uh, some uh, commentators call this the great parabola. So if you know some calculus, you know the shape of a parabola, right? And we're doing the upside down, the U kind here, right? So uh, Jesus goes from the highest spot down to the lowest spot and then is exalted again back to the highest. That's the idea. And, and as he does this, uh, it's fascinating to know he covers the entire universe. Uh, the phrase Lord, <coughs> Lord of the universe has been in my mind the last couple of days in the opening prayer uh, that was said once again uh, providentially. The Lord of the universe, Jesus is that Lord. He spoke all things into being through him, through the word. And then Jesus himself surveys that entire universe going from the highest spot down to the lowest, to earth, to the cross. He descends into hell. Then he's exalted again to the right hand. Uh, many of the great stories, the great fiction writers in the past century and beyond do this as well. Um, if you know me at all, you know you'll get a Lord of the Rings illustration at least once a month. Um, and I was just watching one of the movies yesterday. Uh, it's like Aragorn, who goes from Rivendell, high in the elvish peaks, down to Bree in the inn, down to the depths of Moria, and then up to Gondor, and then down to the paths of the dead. He surveys all of Middle-earth. And then, after all of that, he receives the crown, and he's the king of it. It's the same kind of thing with our Lord Jesus. 
He goes down and he is raised up. Satan says he'll go up. And so he's cast down. That's the example Paul is using here. He's going to the the great work of redemption Christ wrought for us on the cross and his humiliation, his exaltation to show that we also are called to humility. So verse 6 and 7, though Jesus was in the form of God, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He's not clinging to his rights is the point Paul is making here. Uh, not something to be grasped. You don't, you don't hang on to it by force. Uh, Jesus wasn't clinging on, hanging on uh, to his status as one being equal with God. He didn't have to hang on to his glory. He was willing to let it go and come down and, and appear as just an ordinary man, even though he was far beyond that. Uh, so uh, these verses, verses 6 and 7, uh, they, they assume some doctrine that it's important to reaffirm every now and then. It is the pre-existence of Christ. Uh, Jesus was not just a man. It's not that God bestowed on him a, a, a status of divinity. Jesus always was. That's why we read from John 1 today. He was with God in the beginning. Uh, John 17, when Jesus is praying in the high priestly prayer, he says, the glory that I had with you before the world was. Restore me to that. So Jesus asserts there indirectly that he was uh, with God in the beginning, had the same glory God had. Jesus is divine. He's equal with God, we see there in verse 6. And he didn't hang on to that. He didn't hang on to that. See, he made himself, verse 7 now, made himself nothing, takes the form of a servant, and is born in the likeness of men. So this is the incarnation of Christ right here. Uh, you see it in the three different uh, phrases, made himself nothing, taking the form, being born in the likeness. Uh, and uh, all of those are stated as fact. It's assumed as part of Paul's argument that we should be humble because look what Jesus did. Look what he did. Look what happened to him. Look who he was. So Paul here, a little bit of apologetics aside a moment, Paul isn't arguing something new here that, that the church would have a hard time accepting. This isn't new doctrine. Paul's appealing to things that the early church already knows, and he's appealing to it because he knows they'll get that, and then from that they can go on to being humble themselves. So we've had all this Da Vinci Code kind of stuff lately, these myths in the world today that that our assertions about Jesus developed hundreds of years after Jesus by men who just wanted power in the church. That's really where all this came from. It's patently untrue. Peter was preaching the same gospel only 50 days after the resurrection at Pentecost. Jesus is sent from God as his son, he says. So... Jesus lays that aside. He, he demits his office for a time, is one way to put this. As he, in verse 7, he's, he, he humbles himself. He uh, lays aside, empties himself of this status, of these benefits. So he's willing to serve. He's willing to suffer. He's found in human form, verse 8. And he humbles himself, takes the form of a man. Uh, have to be careful how we read this. Some... Uh, false teachers in the church have read these as saying, well, yeah, look, it's, it's just talking about the outward appearance of Jesus. So he just, it just looked like he was a man. So he wasn't really a man. He just appeared to be. And we have to watch out for that. The, the word is in the Greek is schema, 
you know, like we get the scheme idea from. Not, not as in scheming deviously, but as in schematics. If you've got some schematics, you've got the blueprint. So it, it's not just the outward form, but it's how was he built? Well, Jesus was, he, he was, he was built, his structure, his being was as a man. Or when you look at the word form, uh, that can mean outward, but it can also mean inward. We, can, we sometimes say, oh, he's in good form today. Right? We have that kind of phrase. That, that doesn't, doesn't just refer to that he looks good. It means he's doing well. Right? So form doesn't just mean the outward. Jesus was a man right down to the inner uh, soul that he had. He was fully man, fully human, and also remaining fully God. So he becomes like us in, in our temptations, in our sufferings. He's humble in how he lived. Isaiah 42 pointed this out, uh, that he's a, a bruised, uh, he won't uh, quench a bruised, uh, break a bruised reed. Uh, he won't uh, quench a faintly burning wick. He's not going to cry aloud in the street. Uh, he's, he's humble in how he lived. He was compassionate with those who were hurting. So Jesus humbles himself. He knows uh, how to handle uh, those who are hurting because he's been there. And he humbles himself even to the point of death. And then in the last clause of verse 8, even death on a cross. So Jesus' humility goes all the way to the cross. And that we have to keep reminding ourselves of the shamefulness of the cross. The Romans did everything they could to make the most shameful and embarrassing death and execution they could, and that was the cross. To, to be nailed naked to a board and stood up for everybody to see, and then you have to either suffocate or, or stand yourself up in excruciating pain, and, and it takes, it, it's an agonizingly slow death over hours and it, while everybody's watching you. They designed this to be shameful, and Jesus humbles himself to die in that way. So, again, the point of all this in context is that Jesus is our prime example for humility. Look how he humbled himself, how he was willing to lay aside his rights, his deserved dignity. But when we come to Christ's death on the cross, remember, uh, Jesus only makes sense as our example if he really saves us from our sins. Lots of people today are willing to look to Jesus as their example. Uh, look how we're supposed to live. Jesus was such a great teacher, or he was a good example. He, he shows us how we're supposed to, to live. That's true, but only if he actually saves from our sins. Uh, if Jesus didn't save us at the cross, if God wasn't working there, then it was just a, a pitiful death, and there isn't much, much there to, to admire. But Jesus... That was God's son, and he willingly laid aside his rights. He, uh, so we're like the drowning man who needs rescue from a lifeguard. We don't need the example while we're flailing in the water, going under for the third time. We don't need the example of how great a swimmer Jesus is. What we need is we need the lifeguard to drag us out of the water. Now, later, we, need, we should go back and get swimming lessons. And Jesus is our example for that. So Jesus is both. He's, he's the one who rescues. He atones for our sins. But he also shows us how to swim. So we need to maintain both in the Christian life. Often theologians pit one of those against the other. And that gets us in trouble. 
there's an important distinction here between Christ's work for us, which Paul's describing here, and Christ's work in us, which Paul writes about in the rest of this chapter. And he's saying, Christ's work in you is that you be unified, you be humble, you, you live together in peace, the fruit of the Spirit that we uh, read as well. Uh, so we do need Jesus as an example of how to obey God. God's word gives us not just rules and commandments to obey, but a person to follow. We're disciples of Jesus. So we're called to that. Imitate me as I imitate Christ, Paul says. That, that, is, that Even that pattern continues, not just with that each of us follow Jesus, but we have examples in the church to follow. And Paul sets himself up as, as that in 1 Corinthians 11. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Follow my example, he says, in the next chapter of Philippians. Uh, but, and, and this is a really important however, that all has to do with our sanctification, with our obedience. That's Christ's work in us. That's not how we're saved from God's wrath. It's not how we're justified. You're not justified by following good examples hard enough. You're justified by faith alone in Christ. So Jesus jumped into the water. He humbled himself. It's his work that sets you right with God. And Paul takes a moment to focus on that work of Christ because without it, there is no way we can obey God. The Christian life isn't just rules and self-denial. Without the work of Christ for you, there's nothing to be done in you. To please God. If you recall uh, Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, I know how many of you have read Pride and Prejudice, that's a big thing uh, by us. Uh, we're like the old foolish Mr. Bennett, whose daughter runs away with the scoundrel. And Mr. Bennett is too poor to fix it. Uh, he's helpless, and he has to accept financial aid from others, uh, from Darcy, uh, to get him out of the mess that his foolishness created. And it's humiliating. And he knows it. It's in the same way, we're like Mr. Bennett. It's humiliating for us to just accept the work of someone else to put our problems right, to not earn that ourselves. But that's exactly what we have to do in the gospel. We need to accept the work of Christ for us. And that, that humbling, that's part of God sanctifying us too. In the story, Mr. Darcy has to first act for Bennett to have anything to accept. And Darcy, he stoops well below his level socially, and he humbles himself to rescue the Bennetts when he doesn't have to. And he does it because he loves Elizabeth. He loves her. And that's the humility of Christ that verse 8 speaks of. Now, that's a pale picture, of course, because Jesus isn't Darcy. Jesus doesn't just drop some money and show up at an awkward wedding which is what Darcy does, Jesus goes to excruciating lengths for us, bears the wrath of God against sin, which, which only he could have known fully, that wrath of God ahead of time. And he goes to the cross. So Jesus willingly goes from the highest place, think parabola again, that the highest place of beloved son at the right hand of God to the lowest place for you, because he wants you to be with him. He wants reconciliation for his redeemed people. And he accomplishes that at the cross. And because of that, verses 9 through 11, some of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, exaltation follows. 
God gives him a name above every name. Uh, some think that there's, this is a specific word. I don't think that's right. It's not that the name Jesus or the name Christ is, is literally the highest word. In, in, uh, some have gotten wrapped around the axle, I think, about that. It's, it's just, that's not the point. It just means, name here means rank or position. Jesus, the, the person of Jesus has the highest position of everyone. The point is the person of Jesus has the highest place. He's the Lord of the universe. So every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess at the name of Jesus that Jesus Christ is Lord. Uh, in Revelation chapter 5, glorious chapter, where John sees uh, in the throne room of heaven the Lamb standing as though slain. And what happens when he sees the Lamb? Uh, the Lamb goes and takes the scroll, uh, Revelation 5, verse 7, uh, verse 8, and when he had taken the scroll, the living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. It's a glorious vision uh, of all of creation. The rest of the chapter describes all living creatures in all of creation, in heaven, on earth, in the sea, under the earth, singing praise to God and bowing down and worshiping. Paul says the same here. Every knee will uh, bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. On the earth, above the earth, under the earth. It reminds me of the magician's nephew uh, in the Chronicles of Narnia uh, when uh, Aslan creates all the creatures and then they gather around him in a circle and all hail Aslan. You have created us. You are worthy. C.S. Lewis's attempt at giving us that picture of worship, worshiping God simply for creating us, for being our maker. So we will confess that Jesus is Lord uh, to the glory of God the Father. And that word confess, uh, there's going to be two ways in which people worship or bow or confess. Uh, For those opposed to Christ, they're going to admit that Jesus is Lord. Uh, We, along with all the angels, are going to celebrate that Jesus is Lord. You get the distinction? There's there's a distinction there. Psalm 110 says, God the Father is going to tell Jesus, his son, sit at my right hand until all your your enemies are put under your feet. That's the moment to which Paul is looking here. When all rivals are removed... And that, that brings up the tension, doesn't it? Because as we look at the world around us, we're seeing more and more rivals, it seems, sometimes, not less and less. Hebrew, the writer of Hebrews says, we don't see everything in submission to Jesus yet. We have prime ministers and we have presidents who do not follow him. Uh, in James 2, uh, James says, the demons believe that God is one, but they tremble at it. They work against it. But that moment is coming when every mouth opposed to God will be stopped. All of our excuses will be stopped. All the world and every man and every fallen angel in it will stand before God knowing its guilt. And the Lord Jesus will be on the throne separating the sheep from the goats, taking those he came to save to himself, sending the rest away into the outer darkness. And there will be no one, there will be nothing to stop him. Now, if it was any other 
being in creation besides Jesus, that would be a scary thought. But this is Jesus. This is what we want. Notice again Isaiah 42. Go back. Isaiah 42, verse 4. It says it quite plainly. Isaiah 42. Lost my spot. He will not grow faint or be discouraged until he has established justice in the earth. That's Jesus. Hillary Clinton, with all of her political machinery, cannot gin up enough votes to stop Jesus Christ. George Soros, with his billions, cannot spend and lobby enough to stop him. The liberal media cannot spin the story enough to stop Jesus. And, that, and that's all out there in the culture, in the world. More importantly than that, more importantly than that, the remaining sin within me, the remaining sin within you, which seems so strong at times, the remaining hindrances to fellowship in your marriage, in your congregation, cannot stop Jesus Christ from consummating and bringing in his kingdom. That's the good news of the gospel. These sins that still oppose Jesus daily in our pride and our selfishness, they're going to be put down, and we're called to put them down now. And they won't stop the Lord Jesus. He will have his will done on earth as it is in heaven. So every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. And this is where Paul leaves us here, thinking of Jesus, high and exalted, seated on the throne. And in verse 12, he shifts gears. That's where we'll pick up next time. His, his main focus here, again, is the Philippians conducting themselves worthy of the gospel. But if we are to behave properly before God, we must be thinking of Jesus. We cannot be upright, decent, obedient citizens and children of God without following Jesus. And so Paul gives us uh, the work of Christ uh, to follow in the steps of Christ, his glory, his humility, his obedience, his death, his exaltation, his lordship over all creation. Everything was made through him. He has passed through the heavens he made. He passed the angels he created, to the mountains and the rivers. He comes to the men he made, suffers our temptations and trials. We reject him. He descends to hell too, and he's surveyed the entire universe, made through him, made for him. And now he's reigning in heaven, making Middle Earth his own, like heaven is already. And we will come back to the theme of humility next time, but for now, accept the work of Christ for you. Celebrate his lordship over all of creation, over you. Don't just grudgingly admit the truth, or don't just kind of mindlessly nod in assent to the truth. Celebrate that Christ is Lord, his humility. And let that celebration move you towards humility together and toward each other. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your word of grace, your word of truth. Uh, thank you for the picture you paint of your son, Jesus, exalting him and glorifying him. Uh, thank you, Lord, for the, the majesty and the glory that uh, you share together, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, thank you for your mercy in humbling yourself and bringing us into your fellowship. We pray, Lord, uh, that we would uh, 
follow in the footsteps of Jesus. That we would humble ourselves. We would sacrifice in great ways to be unified, to be loving our neighbor as ourselves. Lord, since we are following Jesus, we also pray as Christ taught us to pray. It is at his name and before his presence that every person ever in the history of mankind will bow and profess with their mouths that he is Lord. Jesus has been made king over all forever, and here at this table we celebrate his exaltation. And yet when we come to his table, we do not find the feast of a king. Instead, we see the meal of a peasant, a simple loaf of bread, and a cup of wine. But let us never be misled by the simplicity of this meal. These elements, though modest in their appearance, signify an incredible reality. We are united to Christ, to his death and resurrection, and because of his death on the cross, we are made his people, children of the King. In Hebrews, we read that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That joy set before him was his exaltation, his inheritance of the kingdom of heaven. That same joy is also set before us. We, for now, must also endure the sufferings of this life. But because of Jesus Christ, a glorious joy does await us. This, simple, this meal, though simple, is a reminder of that joy, that one day we too will be glorified and enter into his promised rest. This meal, though simple, is a reminder that one day we too will sit down. We will sit down to a great meal, the feast of a king, the banquet table of the king of all kings. So come to the Lord's table and be filled with his joy. We invite to the Lord's table all those who are baptized and under the authority of Christ and his body, the church. By eating the bread and drinking the cup with us, you acknowledge that you are a sinner without hope except in the sovereign mercy of God and that you are trusting in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Christ's body broken for us. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C H R I S T. K-I-R-K-M-I dot com. Again, thank you and blessings.